Hi everybody, I trust that you are well. It's been quite a week in the life of our country and I trust that you and your family are all safe and well and praying that God will bring peace to our country at this time. We're going to continue with the theme that we looked at last week, the spiritual discipline of confession. And given everything that had taken place in our country this past week, I did wonder whether this was the correct theme. But as I thought about it, it occurred to me that even in situations where we feel that we have been wronged, or indeed where we have been wronged, there is still often the need for us to confess. Some of you may know of Coventry Cathedral in England, which during World War II was almost totally destroyed by German bombers. It stands as a great symbol of a community that was wronged. And yet if you visit the cathedral today as it is restored, the overwhelming sense that you get is one of forgiveness and reconciliation. Near the altar of the cathedral, you can find this prayer of confession. For the hatred which divides nation from nation, race from race, class from class, Father, forgive. For the greed which exploits the labours of people and lays waste to the earth, Father, forgive. For our envy of the welfare and happiness of others, Father, forgive. For our indifferences to the plight of the homeless and the refugee, Father, forgive. For the lust which uses ignoble ends, the bodies of men and women, Father, forgive. For the pride which leads us to trust in ourselves and not in God, Father, forgive. Even in situations where we feel that we are the injured party, there is still sometimes a need for us to confess. So as I say, we're going to continue to look at the spiritual discipline of confession. And today I want us to look at one of the great confessional prayers in the Bible. It's from the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. If you look at Psalm 51 in your Bible, you will notice that it has a heading which places the psalm in a historical context. The heading says this, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. I'm sure that you're familiar with the story as it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. David, who is the greatest king that Israel ever had, is firmly established as king over Israel and Judah. He has set up his capital city in Jerusalem. He has rest from all of the enemies who opposed his kingship. He has brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and set up true and proper worship of God in that city. And one evening, as he is walking on the roof of his palace, he looks down and sees a young lady, Bathsheba, taking a bath on her roof. That was the coolest place to do that in ancient Israel. 
And we read that David lusts after her, sends for her, and sleeps with her, even though she is a married woman. Her husband is one of the officers in David's army, fighting one of David's battles for him. When Bathsheba falls pregnant and tells David this, David tries to make it look like the child belongs to her husband by calling Uriah back from the battlefield and sending him home. But his plan backfires as Uriah refuses to accept privileges that are denied his fellow army officers. And so David has to send Uriah back to the front, carrying a letter to his own commanding officer, which really is a death warrant. David asks the officer to attack a strong part of the city and then withdraw, leaving Uriah alone to die, which is exactly what happens. After a suitable and respectable period of mourning, David marries Bathsheba, and a few months later they have a child, and David thinks he's got away with it. But we read in Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In Second Samuel chapter 12, we read how the prophet Nathan comes to David and tells him a little parable which hits David right between the eyes. David suddenly realizes all that he has done. And David confesses and repents, and Psalm 51 is a reflection on that incident and its aftermath. Let me read the psalm to you. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place." Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. When it comes to repentance and confession of sin in our lives, I believe there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall. The first error is that we can allow our sin to overwhelm us. Martin Luther was a monk in the Roman Catholic Church before he broke with Rome and began the movement which we know today as Protestantism. But as a monk, he was overwhelmed by his sin. He went to confession daily, sometimes up to six hours at a time, and he would ransack his memory to make sure that every last sin had been confessed. He would often walk out of the confessional box thinking that he'd finally dealt with his sin and then a few minutes later would remember something else that needed to be confessed and go back again. One day in exasperation, the person to whom he was confessing said this to him. Look here, he said, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something worth forgiving, parricide, blasphemy, adultery, instead of all of these peccadilloes. Martin Luther's awareness of his sin meant that when he discovered the grace of God, it radically revolutionized his life and set the course for the Reformation. But at this time in his life, he was overwhelmed by a sense of sinfulness. Had he confessed enough? Was he sorry enough? Had God really forgiven him? It paralyzed him. If the first error is to be overwhelmed by our sin, then the second error, I believe, is to overlook our sin, to think that our sin is unimportant, to believe that all of our sins have been taken care of on the cross and that there is no need for us to spend hours calling them to mind. We have to be victorious Christians. Now, speaking entirely for myself, I believe that it's that second error into which we most often fall, particularly as Protestant Christians. We believe that we've been forgiven, and we have. All our sin, past, present, and future, was dealt with on the cross of Calvary. That's a glorious truth. But there is still a need for us to keep short accounts with God. There is a need for us to come before God at the end of each day and ask him for his forgiveness for the things that we have done and said and thought and not done that have displeased him. And so, whether we are those who want to approach God for the very first time to ask his forgiveness, or whether we are Christians who've been praying for years, Psalm 51 is a model prayer for true repentance. It's quite difficult to preach on a psalm like this because this is a poem, a very beautiful and profound poem, and each line of the poem is so rich. And so at the risk of spoiling what is otherwise a lovely piece of poetry, I do want to break it down under four headings, four things that we learn about sin and confession from this psalm. Firstly, I believe that the psalm has something very important to teach us about the nature of sin. David begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Right in the first two verses, David uses three words for sin. He speaks about transgressions, iniquity, and sin. 
David is prepared to call a spade a spade. I remember reading about two new marines on a military troop ship, and they'd been pestering the captain all day long with their silly questions. And eventually the captain turned to them and said, Gentlemen, I don't mind you calling the ship a boat. I don't mind you calling the companionways the stairs. You can call the cabins your rooms. You can call the portholes windows. You can even call the funnel the chimney. But stop calling my bridge the veranda. David calls sin, sin. He begins by speaking about transgressions. He uses a Hebrew word that means a willful defiance of God. It's a word that is often used to describe a revolt or an uprising. It's speaking about a deliberate rebellion against God's will. David goes on to speak about iniquity, which is a Hebrew word that speaks about bending or twisting or going astray, not accidentally, but again deliberately. And then thirdly, he uses the word that we know the best, the word sin. It's a Hebrew word that means missing the mark. In the book of Judges, chapter 20, the writer speaks about a group of soldiers who were left-handed and who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. The word miss there is the same word that is used here for sin. All of these words suggest a deliberate act. Sin is not a matter of slipping, but of taking a deliberate slide. One Old Testament scholar putting all of these words together comes up with this definition of sin. A personal and voluntary deviation from a norm, ultimately directed against God. And David speaks about that in verse 4, doesn't he? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This ties in, of course, with David's reply to Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Which is a strange thing to say if you think about it. Think about all of the pain that David's sin caused others. What about the way in which David used Bathsheba? What about his murder of her husband Uriah? What about the other men who were also killed in that battle? What about the bad witness David was to his servants in the palace and to his fellow army commanders? Surely these are the people whom David has sinned against. Well, yes, each of those have been sinned against, but ultimately all sin is directed against God. That doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to ask others to forgive us. It doesn't mean that we don't have to make restitution. But it does mean that when we sin, we offend and hurt God and should confess to him because in sinning we have hurt him. David admits something else about sin in verse 5. He admits that his act of sin was not just a passing lapse or a once-off mistake. He realizes that this is something that is fundamental to his human nature. Look at verse 5 again. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, this verse is not suggesting that conceiving children is wrong. It's simply pointing out that right from the earliest stages, human beings are sinful. I always remember once hearing Pastor Terry Ray speaking about this in a sermon. 
He said that one morning he was busy shaving in front of the mirror when his four-year-old son came into the bathroom and sat and watched him. And when Terry had finished shaving, he put the razor down on the edge of the bath and said to his son, That's sharp. Don't touch it. It will hurt you. A few hours later, Terry was sat reading in the living room and his son came running into the room crying with blood dripping from his lip. And Terry asked him, What happened? And his son said, I tripped and fell in the corridor. And so Terry took him on his knee and got his handkerchief out and dabbed his son's lip. And there he could see the cut, a twin-edged cut from a twin-edged razor. And he said it wasn't the fact that his son had disobeyed him that hurt. It was the fact that he'd lied that hurt him the most. He said it was so interesting. He didn't have to sit his son down and teach him to lie. Son, if you're ever in trouble, just lie. It came naturally. There is something built into our human nature as descendants of Adam that has a permanent bent towards sinning. We are like those balls that you get in the game of bowls that are weighted to one side. When you roll them along the lawn, they go straight for a while, but when they slow down, they bend to one side. As human beings, we have an inbuilt bent to do what is wrong. The Apostle Paul knew this in his own life too. He says this in Romans chapter 7. Let me read it from the Living Bible. It seems to be a fact of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love to do God's will so far as my new nature is concerned, but there is something else deep within me in my lower nature that is at war with my mind and wins the fight and makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. In my mind, I want to be God's willing servant, but instead I find myself still enslaved to sin. When I want to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. That's the nature of sin, that it's a deliberate and willful disobedience of God and that we inherit sin's nature when we are born. But let's move on and look at what can be done about our sin. And I believe that there are three things that are important for us here. The first thing that we see in this psalm is that David acknowledges his sin. He writes in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. As human beings, we're very good at excusing our behaviour. I once came across some things that people had written in their motor insurance claims. These are their statements about how the accident had occurred. Coming home, I drove into the wrong driveway and hit a tree I haven't got. In my attempt to kill a fly, I drove into a telephone pole. I ran over a man. He admitted it was his fault since he'd been knocked down before. The trees were passing me in an orderly row at 50 miles per hour when suddenly one of them stepped out into my path. The accident was caused by me waving to the man I hit last week. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law and headed over the embankment. David could have made many excuses for his sin. It's not my fault that Bathsheba was standing naked on the top of her roof. Uriah wasn't much of a husband. I was doing her a favour by showing her what real love is all about. It was just one little slip, you know. But David shows his character here by not doing that. He acknowledges his sin. 
In the first three verses of this psalm, David uses the word my five times. My iniquity, my sin, my transgression. David is prepared to own his sin. And he acknowledges that he is wrong and God is right. You are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Folk, again, there is the need for us to acknowledge our sin before God on a regular basis and to keep short accounts with him, not to make excuses for our sin, but to acknowledge it before God. Let me say that there are consequences to not acknowledging our sin. In verse 8, David says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. It seems that there is some pain in not confessing our sins. Remember last week we had a look at Psalm 32, where the psalmist says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. That is the pain of someone who knows that they are doing wrong and who knows that they are not right with God. Maybe this morning there is pain within your life. You know that you're not in a right relationship with God. We could save ourselves a lot of pain if we came honestly before God today. And there is a further reason that we need to acknowledge and confess our sins before God. In verse 11, David prays, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, in the Old Testament, God's Holy Spirit came on a particular individual for a certain period of time and for a particular task. God's Spirit could be taken from people. But in the New Testament, that can no longer happen because God's Spirit always remains in us as believers. It is possible, though, to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It's possible to quench the Holy Spirit too. And this is another reason why we need to take sin seriously and deal with it. If there is unconfessed sin in our lives, then we're not going to be able to walk by the Spirit and be used by God effectively. There is a need for all of us then to acknowledge our sin before God. But secondly, we see that David asks God for forgiveness. The very first line of this psalm is so important. David appeals to God, Have mercy on me, O God. The basis for this request is not because of anything that David has done. David knows that if he is to be forgiven, it has to be because of the grace of God. David doesn't begin by saying, remember the fact that I've brought the ark into Jerusalem. Remember the fact that I want to build a temple for you. Remember my past devotion. No, he appeals to God's mercy. And that is what we do when we come to ask for forgiveness. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a parable about two men who went into the temple to pray. The one was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee began by justifying himself and saying all the good things that should make him acceptable to God. The tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. Instead, he simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that he was the man who went home justified before God. 
The description of God that we have in the Bible is of a God who has love and compassion for us. Psalm 103 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And it's on that basis that David appeals to God. Do you remember how David uses three words for sin in this psalm? Well, he also uses three word pictures to ask God to deal with his sin. First of all, he asks God to blot out his transgressions. In David's day, that meant removing something from a book or from a scroll, probably as it has been written, quickly removing the ink. David is asking that the record of his sin be removed. The second image is one that comes from the household. David asks God to wash away his sin. It's a very powerful image that is often used in the Bible, that something that was filthy and stinking and useless can be clean and pure again. God says in Isaiah chapter 1, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And thirdly, David asks God to cleanse him. The imagery seems to come from the temple where a sick man who'd been made well would come to the priest and the priest would take a hyssop plant and sprinkle the man with water and declare him clean before he was unclean and couldn't be a part of the community or come near to God at the temple. But now he is clean, able to be in fellowship with God and with his fellow believers. It's interesting that in this psalm, David goes beyond the common understanding of forgiveness. In verses 16 and 17, he says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That was quite a radical statement in those days, because in those days, sacrifice was the only way that you got right with God. And yet David instinctively knows that there is more than just an outward show of forgiveness that is important. It is a heart attitude that is most important. And yet David could have had no idea about how true forgiveness would really come about. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, and he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. David had no idea about the full forgiveness that one of his ancestors would bring about through his selfless death on the cross. And then finally, once David has acknowledged his sin and asked for forgiveness, he can pray that God will restore him. 
David realizes that although God's forgiveness is wonderful, unless God does something radical in his life, then the future is simply going to be a repetition of the past. He's just going to make the same mistakes all over again. And so he asks God to come and change him. Verse 10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And the thought is repeated in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is actually a very important verse. We normally think that David is feeling sad about his sin and so asks God to restore his joy. But one writer points out that actually it wasn't just that David was feeling bad about his sin but rather that losing the joy of his salvation had led him to sin in the first place. The reason that he had sought acceptance and comfort and love in the arms of Bathsheba was because he wasn't finding acceptance and comfort and love in the arms of God. All sin is fundamentally seeking satisfaction in other things outside a relationship with God. And so, in fact, experiencing sinful human desires is often a warning indicator light to us that our relationship with God is not as strong as it should be. If I'm feeling tempted, I probably need to go and spend more time with God in daily devotions, reading Christian books, listening to Christian music. David prays for a desire to do God's will, a spontaneous desire to please God rather than a grudging obedience. One writer points out that a willing spirit is God's own antidote to temptation. If our desire in life is to please God, then it will keep us from temptation. And once David has gone through the steps of acknowledging sin, asking for forgiveness, seeking restoration, he then becomes useful to God once again. Have a look at what David prays from verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. It's not as if when we come back to God, we are forgiven, but we are always second-class citizens. No, God recommissions us and sends us out again. Think of the woman at the well whom Jesus gently confronts with her sinful life. She goes running back to the town saying, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did and loves me anyway. The experience of sin and forgiveness so transformed that lady's life that she became the first missionary to the Samaritans. And in the same way here, David's life is turned and changed so that even the bad things, even the sin, is used by God so that David can turn others back to God. May God grant us the courage and the strength this week to be involved in confession, acknowledgement, seeking forgiveness, so that we would leave God's presence with 
quiet minds and strong hearts ready to love and serve the Lord. Amen.